0: Pushkin You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and they handle them all in one place with the Chase Mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member FDIC.
1: The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business.
2: So we were on the we were on the Kenwood High School tennis team together, and I remember when we were on the team together that uh, you were voted most improved player. <laughs> <laughs> our our, yeah, our because, junior year, because
3: I worked because I worked really hard. So our junior year, our get, junior year, you to get, you, really, you were, to get no, really good. it's really yes. admirable.
2: Like you yeah, were, I know that's right. So you were voted and, our junior and, and year, and that
3: award, that award,
2: is the second most important award. No, I, I, it, to me, it's first place. But I just want to add that <laughs> our senior year, you got voted most improved again. <laughs> <laughs> You got you. You were the only player in the history of any sport to get voted most improved two years in a row.
3: That's just, that is only because no. I looked it I, up. Am I looked hard, it up. I, am hard, I am a hard worker.
1: No, you so are. My game. My 100%. game went.
3: You know that book from Good to Great. <laughs> Come on, you should write a book. Most okay. improved. I'm Khalil Dubran Muhammad. And I'm Ben Austin. We're two best friends, one black,
2: one white. I'm a historian. And I'm a journalist and a better tennis player. <laughs> and this is some of my best friends are. In this show, we
3: wrestle with the challenges and the absurdities of a deeply divided and unequal country. On this episode, we're going to talk about our favorite sport, tennis. I mean, this year's U.S. Open was incredible in so many ways. Two young women of color coming from way behind to to capture the hearts and minds of tennis fans everywhere.
2: And and really, that leads us into this uh, fascinating discussion about women's tennis, professional women's tennis. It's so diverse, and it's so much more diverse than other sports. How did it get that way, and what could we learn from it? One of the reasons that that women's professional tennis is is really diverse, and that men's professional tennis is much less so, is that for women who are athletic, this is the most lucrative professional sport. There's Mm -hmm, no other sport mm -hmm. where you can you can make money like this. That's right. Uh, And people WNBA nothing. Yeah,
3: yeah. And and just to acknowledge people like Billie Jean King uh, are were part of the the effort to make that possible because even someone like Althea Gibson. Uh, who was trailblazing uh, in every way uh, and you know led the game for in the mid 1950s um struggled financially because she she never made much money part of it was her amateur status uh, when she was winning those tournaments but you know it's a it's a it's a tale that fortunately, in this case, we can say has led to a really positive outcome in terms of equity for women's tennis.
2: And if you're a young man, whether you're white or black or Hispanic or Asian or whatever in America, you know, the the menu of sports that you can go to to if you're yep. incredibly athletic and make a lot of money
3: is much, much bigger. And tennis is sort of down the list. And yet tennis remains this predominantly yep. white elite sport. Totally. it's. And so the progress of these Black women and women of color in general is all the more stunning.
2: Yeah, yeah. So so let's look at what U.S. women's tennis has actually done to become so diverse.
3: And what they still need to do. You, you know, you think
2: about the Williams sisters and you think about Sloan Stevens, you think about Coco Gauff, Madison Keys. When the Williams sisters were in the U.S. Open in 2010, they were the only two Black women in the draw of 128. Yeah. In yeah. 2020, 12 Black women were in. That's a tenth of the entire draw. Yeah, no, it's
3: incredible. And, and maybe there's a lesson there about how that happened.
2: Yeah, but we're going to look at how much that diversity has actually changed a historically very, very, very white space. So let's do it. Mm, serve it up, Khalil. Spin the racket. <laughs> let's go. I'm not going to take right. it easy on you. <laughs> okay. Before we talk about some of the greatest athletes who have ever lived,
3: let's talk about ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of dudes from the south side of Chicago. Yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. We spent a week together this summer, our families, as we do almost every summer. Mm-hmm. And what you and I end up doing is pretty much playing tennis every day. Like we've, been, day. we've, been, we've been doing this
3: for mo- most of our lives now. We've been playing tennis yeah. together for like 35 years. That's right. That's right. We've tried to get our kids involved. You know, my my two girls uh, play uh, youth tennis, uh, took tennis lessons in tennis camp. We actually have a kind of
2: strange tennis upbringing for the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. Being on the south side of Chicago, we're kind of in this this tennis bubble where a lot of the coaches, I'd say almost all of the teaching pros and most of the, the players are black.
3: Yep. I mean, we came of age in it in this southeast part of the city, that was uh, by the 1970s was just brimming with tennis activity, yeah. and I remember I have I have a crystal clear picture. I was probably five or six years old, and I was tagging along with my mom, okay. uh, who I I have this total memory of her in like a total yeah. like badass tennis outfit. You, you know, like, you know, she had a cute outfit on. You know, <laughs> that's right, <laughs> that's right. You know, and. It. And, uh, you know, little, little tennis skirt. And, and of course, back then the rackets were wooden. Um, I still remember her giving me one. And, uh, and I asked her recently, you know, just to make sure my memory was correct. You know, uh, did I get it right? Was it because of her that I was first exposed to the game? And here's what she said.
4: Yes, you were um, a toddler, um, probably four or five. And you had to hang alone. There were other children there. So it was an open area. And you could play with others and you were safe. Um, and you could watch us if you wanted to, but you were kids, so you, you kind of played. So about that tender age of being, um, you know, four or five, all the way up until I want to say about eight or nine, I stuck with the game. And until until you, I was
3: about eight
4: or nine. Yeah, until yeah. you were about eight or nine, until you were at the age where you had friends, where you didn't have to come with me to tennis. Um, But yes, you enjoyed it as well, and apparently um, so well as to the fact that you continue.
2: Man, it's so great to hear your mom. (laughs) I mean, I think I think people would be surprised and how sweet she sounds that to hear that that her nickname was Shorty Ruff. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Yes,
2: (laughs) yeah, she didn't take no stuff. (laughs) Still does. (laughs) So there's a tennis boom, and it's interesting to think how that creeps into all parts of American life. And there is a famous tennis match that's televised in 1975 of Arthur Ashe beating Jimmy Connors. Jimmy Connors plays against Arthur Ashe in a very exciting
5: final. Despite the determination and spectacular point scoring of favorite Connors, the cool head of Arthur Ashe
4: helps him to stay on top.
2: Arthur Ashe being an African-American male player. Jimmy Connors was, like, invincible. And he beats him in Wimbledon, and it's televised. And I think that also helps to sort of extend this boom into,
3: into Black America as well. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I asked my mom about whether she had been influenced by uh, seeing people play tennis. And she mentioned Arthur Ashe directly.
2: Yeah, you know, and, and so in our youth... Sort of feeding off of this boom, a tennis club opens on the south side of Chicago. I'd be curious to hear what you think of like seeing leaders, seeing teachers, seeing coaches who are all black. It Im- it imprints something on you. You know, it's it's not. It didn't seem like a white sport, at least within that bubble.
3: Yeah, first of all, to even have a, a racket club in your neighborhood, you know, marks our neighborhood as largely middle class, which meant you yes. know, we had access in a way. Uh, that wouldn't be true in the vast majority of communities that were predominantly black in Chicago or anywhere else. And of course, part of, you know, even talking to my mom about this is being reminded of uh, how the southeast part of Chicago, stretching from Hyde Park to Chatham and South Shore, you know, all these places were really for the 1970s and 80s a, a large pocket of black middle class communities. And out of these communities where we grew up, one of the most amazing black women tennis players emerged. Yep, Katrina Adams. I mean, uh, growing up,
2: going to the Hyde Park Racquet Club, she was Mm -hmm. the best player, boy or girl, (laughs) that I ever saw. Um, You know, and that was was powerful to see. And she comes out of the junior tennis among us and goes on to play at Northwestern University. Mm -hmm. And then she goes on the pro circuit and she wins 20 doubles tournaments. That's amazing. (laughs) And after she Mm -hmm. retires, maybe this is even more amazing, she becomes the president of the USTA, the United States Tennis Association. And she's actually just written a book about her experience. It's called Own the Arena, Getting Ahead, Making a Difference, and Succeeding as the Only One. Yep. And you know what she means by the only one. (laughs) So I went and interviewed her about diversity in women's tennis.
5: People look at us differently. It's just an automatic thing to do. And I mean, that's just human nature. And so anytime they are doing something that's different, the first thing that comes up is race. And it shouldn't be that way because other players are doing the same thing and, and behavior is the same way or even more outrageous or whatever it is. But yet our women of color are, are getting blamed for different things differently.
2: When I spoke to her, she says that she created uh, a kind of safe space, a bubble around her, uh, separate, you know, an all-Black space within the white world uh, of tennis.
5: This world of not having Black women, because I immediately went out there and was training and playing doubles with Zena Garrison and Lori McNeil. I moved to Houston because I was training with them. And when you are on the tour, you are kind of isolated in your own space, your own world. And, and so that was my world and my space. So I competed during the day. I did what I needed to do. And then in the evening, that was my space.
3: Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's such a powerful reminder of the loneliness of a sport that is overwhelmingly white um, and how important it was to be part of a community, even if a small community. I think what's also fascinating is that Zena Garrison and, and Lori McNeil. Two, two black women players at that time. Yeah. Yeah, two black women players who also played in a development league for the American Tennis Association, which was a professional society for black players that started in 1916. I mean, like literally over 100 years ago, and and it was out of that world. People like Arthur Ashe, but even earlier, Althea Gibson, uh, who was the first black woman uh, to play uh, at uh, Forest Hills in the National Tennis Championship. She won Wimbledon in 1957. She'd won the French Open the year before in 1956. And so they, Zena Garrison, Laurie McNeil, are uh, coming of age at a moment when we get to see them, but they also represent this incredible tradition um, that is also about integration itself because the ATA birthed this black talent that then enters into this
2: larger white world. And, and you said, I mean, it's also about segregation. It's about complete mm-hmm. separation that, that the, the American Tennis Association forms in many ways because black people were not allowed to play in the U.S. Tennis Lawn Association tournaments. Uh, yeah.
3: I mean, if it was an actual policy that they were forbidden from playing.
2: Yeah. All, all the way into the late 1940s.
3: Yep. I mean, so we, we know about baseball, of course, and Jackie Robinson and all of this, but it just, you know, people don't necessarily think about tennis having this parallel story.
2: So if you think about what that means, it it was a huge deal when Katrina Adams and Zena Garrison and others rose through the tennis ranks beginning in the 1980s. And then, of course, if we jump ahead just a few years to the 1990s, to the end of the 1990s, Serena and Venus Williams enter the scene.
1: She's a phenomenon, an icon, a legend. Ladies and gentlemen, Serena Williams
2: they enter like a hurricane.
5: French Open finalists Venus and Serena Williams have made tennis history. They're the first sisters and the first African-Americans ever to claim the top two spots in the world rankings.
3: A tsunami would be better, like like the entire ocean of, of, of blackness huh. <laughs> descends upon the women's tennis game.
5: I've been working so hard all my life to be here, and I was determined to get this.
2: And it's not just that they, you know, beads and they look different. They hit different than any other women.
5: Venuses are a little more wild and making more noise.
2: They hit harder. Mm-hmm they they yep. they serve harder they go for their shots in a way that that women had not gone for their shots you know they're returning serves and going for winners off the returns of serves and you know today yeah, yeah. that's basically how almost all of the top women play that's but, right but they 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 literally redefine the game they redefine the game i mean and mm-hmm. and so katrina adams even talks about you know like before the williams sisters and after the williams sisters and and this kind of transformative moment
3: their record of accomplishment uh, is just incredible
2: serena is my favorite all-time athlete. Not favorite tennis player. <laughs> not favorite female athlete. Go, she is goats, my favorite goat. my favorite all-time athlete. And that's not Goals. even something you choose. It's like something yeah, when I'm watching yeah. her, like the emotional yeah. connection.
3: Yeah. Uh, Serena Williams and Venus, they already have 30 Grand Slam single titles between them. Yeah. I mean, just unbelievable. And for what it's worth, three Olympic gold medals for doubles and the winningest women's doubles team of all time. So it's just, it's just unparalleled.
2: And the women, the girls who were inspired by them over the next 20 years to enter tennis will sort of get into that more and more. But tennis doesn't, this white sport does not embrace them immediately. It, you know, that it's it's actually, you know, there's actually a kind of backlash. So that gets us to the Indian Wells tournament in 2000, in 2001. So Venus and Serena are 20 and 19 at this t- time, and yeah. they're supposed to play each other in the semifinals, and Venus pulls out with an injury, and the fans yeah. don't believe that she's really injured. They think that this is, like, the setup That's because right. they're dead. She doesn't want them to play one another. So then Serena enters the finals the next day, this 19-year-old girl. 19 yeah. years old, a girl. Yeah.
5: Richard Williams walked
3: 16,000 white people, the vast majority of them booing her. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, she ends up winning in three sets, but afterwards crying for hours.
3: Yeah, I mean, she's 19 years old. I mean, you know, not for nothing, the scene reminds me of that Ruby Bridges moment where a six-year-old is integrating a New Orleans school, you know, surrounded by an angry mob of white people escorted by U.S. marshals.
2: So this reminds me of a piece that Claudia Rankin wrote about Serena Williams. I recommend this book to everyone, Citizen. It's a, right. it's a book that's sort of both like poetry and, and lyric prose. And mm-hmm. one of the chapters is about Serena. And it's about, well, let me just read Claudia Rankin's words because they're better than mine. Mm. She says, What does a victorious or defeated Black woman's body in a historically white space look like? Serena and her big sister Venus Williams brought to mind Zora Neale Hurston's I Feel mm. Most Colored, when I am thrown against a sharp white background.
3: Yeah. And what's so powerful in thinking about Serena Williams is she basically is like, her body contains the weight of history. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so when she shows up in multiple tournaments where she just gets cheated, call after call, like the 2004 US Open against Jennifer Capriati, uh, her body contains the multitudes of the racism that has been, thrown at black people
2: yeah so you mentioned the the match that serena had in 2004 at the u.s open against jennifer capriati who is a Mm -hmm. another american a white a white girl she was also a girl at that time and it's actually if you if you can anyone should youtube this it's crazy to watch uh serena is hitting shot after shot that are clearly in and they're being called out now why are they being called out is it just a bad lines judge is the line judge uh, unconsciously racist? Does she have, un, you know, does she have, uh, Dude, you know, on, unconscious
3: <laughs> bias? Is she actually like racist no, and rooting against be, Serena? It, that's I mean, not the, unconscious bias. That's like some form of visual impairment. Yeah. Right?
2: So you don't, you don't know what's going on, and it, it's crazy to watch.
0: Oh, that ball! Okay, that ball is out. What? What? Serena's going to come right over to talk to the chair. I, that was way in. John, way in. I always defer to you I mean, on these, things. I thought it was good. You excuse me?
5: That ball was so in. No, it was not. What the heck is this? No, that ball is...
0: This is amazing. Ball this is crazy. Well, that's not even close. I
3: mean, that's not even close.
2: Khalil, even hearing that again, my blood starts to boil. I mean... Serena ends up losing this match. And in a way, the match mm-hmm. is taken from her. Stolen. Straight
3: <laughs> straight stolen.
2: Not, and, and not just winning the match. It's actually the thing that makes them put in uh, a, electronic line calling. It's like right. they have to, it has to solve for maybe racism. You know, it has to solve for bias. You know, it's like having the court system. <laughs> you know, like we, we can't trust human beings because they have implicit
3: bias. That, that's right. And I know this is, a little, this is a little far afield, but in the case of the criminal justice system so consistently railroading Black people um, in the early 20th century, we got such things as indigent defense because poor Black people didn't have legal representation. So this just to me is yet another instance where racism has had such a potent force on society, even in sports, where structural changes have had to be made to accommodate or to deal with it.
2: The USCA later apologized for the line calling in this match. And as well they should have. Yeah, they should have. And they pulled the umpire from the tournament. But you know, the damage is done, right? I mean, think about the mm-hmm, psychological mm-hmm. toll on Serena Williams and really on any black woman who's watching the match. You know, it's that idea of not being sure of what's going on. It's like it is actually makes you a little bit crazy. It makes you insane. Yeah. And and psychologically what that is like to be as as Katrina Adams said, the only one. Like to sort of think at every moment, is this racism or is that me just thinking it's racism and and not being sure. And 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 then when you respond to it, when you finally explode with with frustration or rage that you're labeled even more outside it. Oh, look at that. Look at that black woman's
3: rage. Uh, That's right. You know that that this sort of like stereotype that you're fulfilling. It reminds me of in 2009 when yeah. there's a foot fault call that everybody watching this is like, yeah. what? They yeah. just called a foot fault? Who calls foot faults at a crucial moment?
2: Hey, Khalil, let me just quickly define what a foot fault is. A foot fault is when you're serving and you step into the court across the baseline. So that white line on the on the baseline, mm-hmm. you can't step on it when you serve. And John McEnroe is watching and he says there was no foot fault.
3: That's right. And and she literally turns to. The line judge who makes a call and says something like, I'm gonna take this ball and stuff it down your fucking throat. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like yeah. that 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 of course, right? If if you hate Serena Williams or you've got some issues with black black people and in, in their performance of whether they're respectable or not, this is another strike against her. But it's also a powerful moment where her where she reclaims her voice and that matters. Yeah. This is the hypocrisy of racism. Like you have to overcome all the barriers to participate in the first place. You then have to prove that you can compete at the highest level, despite the fact that you've been handicapped with all kinds of disadvantages that we've already talked about. And then when you are subject to micro and macro aggressions, wherever they're coming from, and often in the case of Serena Williams's career, both people in the stands and line judges, then you have to somehow muster some source of respectability like, like like some kind of uh, kryptonite that you apply to yourself so that you can't explode with rage. But again, what that means is you can't actually fully be human. Yeah. Because yeah. any human being facing those circumstances not only would explode, but should explode. Because to internalize that is a form of self-death. When we come back, we're gonna talk
2: about Naomi Osaka, this amazing tennis player. She is part of the future of tennis. Are things going to be different for her than they were for all the women who came before her?
0: Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Message and data rates may apply. JP Morgan Chase a member FDIC 2024, JP Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com
1: slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring.
2: We've been talking about the Williams sisters, but let's talk about a woman that's been on the other side of the net from them. Naomi Osaka, okay? She wins her first Grand Slam at the US Open in 2018, beating her hero, Serena Williams. You know, Serena is one of the reasons that she started playing tennis in the first place. Naomi Osaka, um, she's Haitian. She has a Haitian father and Mm -hmm. a Japanese mother.
3: She grew up in America but officially, she plays for Japan. Right. And she was born in Japan, but uh, they moved to Long Island uh, near Jamaica, Queens, and that's where she grew up playing at a young age.
2: Naomi Osaka is just like an amazing player. She's incredible. Uh, you know, her steely nerves, you know, this sort of like quietness, but like this, this power and force on the court. She's the first Asian player ever man or woman to be number one in the world in tennis. She's won mm. four Grand Slam tournaments at a really young
3: age. But one of the things that I think is really important about uh, Naomi Osaka at this moment is she's doing something different. She's finding a way to find the balance between being this outstanding player and recognizing that this historically white space is still challenging. Mm. It's, it, it, and it, it, is a, it is suffocating in a way. And just this past August, in a warm-up for the U.S. Open, she's in a press conference.
2: Yeah, so this is is a tournament in the United States in August and a lead-up to this year's U.S. Open. And after this match, she says she needs to take a break from tennis.
5: I'm not really sure why. Like, I felt like I was pretty—I was telling myself to be calm, but I feel like maybe there was a boiling point. Like, normally, I feel like I like challenges— but recently, I feel very anxious when things don't go my way.
3: And she's asked about her tennis. But she's also asked about an earthquake in Haiti, where her father's from.
5: And the second one is just related to your tweet over the weekend, uh, related to what's going on in Haiti. Um, Sorry. No, you're super good.
2: And you know, it follows it follows the Olympics with Simone Biles, the gymnast, also stepping away. And you feel you feel the unique pressures on young athletes, young women, and young women of color that right. that she talks about it there of, of you know being representative of. And for her, it's like it's not just her that she's black and Asian. It's also dealing with tennis, which is like has these unique challenges on you psychologically. It is a rigorous, rigorous mental and physical sport.
3: Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it it, it I think so powerfully illustrates the limitations of being the only one uh, in these environments where where people, uh, for all sorts of reasons, uh, can't see your full humanity. Uh, and bring to bear issues onto you, project their own shit onto you uh, in ways that uh, only illustrate how much more needs to change in professional sports and just to just to put things in context in the summer of George Floyd in twenty twenty uh, o- Osaka went to Minneapolis to bear witness to the protests there she decided that, if, she posted on Twitter, she's like, before I'm an athlete, I'm a black woman. And mm. as a black woman, I feel as though these, these things matter. And they, they are more important and require my attention uh, than tennis. She actually um, contributes to disrupting a, a tournament, uh, the Western and Southern Open, in the wake of another shooting of Jacob Blake. Um, yep. And that tournament was, uh, he had been shot in Kenosha, uh, Wisconsin. And she says she won't play. And then the tournament says, you know, you're right, we'll
2: actually take a pause. Yeah, yeah. Which is like, think of how radically that, you know, the the tennis responding to her differently than they were, say, the Williams sisters.
3: You know, in a a way, I mean, to put this in in a kind of frame that I think is really powerful, um, you know, this is totally ironic because we started talking about people like Althea Gibson and Arthur Ashe, I mean, who were literally fighting against Jim Crow America, like formal segregation. And yet... Uh, if there's a is there, if there's a strange kind of uh, period of our childhood, of which we get to the Williams sisters, here we are again, and Osaka's like, "Hold up, wait a minute." And for her, she she's like, "No, no, 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 no. I I can't play in a sport and pretend as if black people aren't dying at the hands of the state." And so she starts wearing masks uh, after she's in Minneapolis, and she's she's literally presenting herself in tournaments with COVID masks with the names of people, uh, Brianna Taylor, Sandra Bland, Jacob Blake, George Floyd. And for her- and, and how powerful for a tennis audience to see that, right? That's right. Like, so then some the right.
2: announcers and the fans have to all respond to that. They are literally saying those names.
3: That's right. She, she forces folks- to say their names, uh, either because they read it in their minds <laughs> or because it becomes part of a conversation in the midst of the interviews.
2: And I and I, I think her stepping away from the sport and saying, I need to deal with my mental health is also a form of empowerment. Yeah, yeah. You know, here she is in this press conference saying, I'm trying to figure out this balance of being a right. representative figure and having all that weight and trying to play tennis at the same time. And I haven't figured it out. And the kind of way that, that we talked about it driving serena mad crazy at times she's like man you know i gotta i gotta like take a break and try to figure it out
4: small business owners this one's for you JPMorgan Chase Bank, NA Member, FDIC, Copyright 2024. JPMorgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with Location Telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at t now.
1: Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring, with access to over 6 million active hourly workers,
3: So let's talk about this year's U.S. Open. I mean, really incredible for so many reasons. Yes, yes. It's time. Let's talk about the, <laughs> the finals match. So, so Emma Raducanu is a British 18-year-old. Her parents are Romanian and Chinese. Uh, she ultimately wins this, this U.S. Open, this year's U.S. Open final. She is this year's Grand Slam winner. Her opponent is Layla Annie Fernandez, a Canadian 19-year-old whose parents are Filipino and Ecuadorian, and she was seated 75th in the tournament. It just, I mean, just wow in every possible sense.
2: Including the sense of like seeing them, these two women of color, it feels like, you know, this is the genesis of all the things we've been talking about. You know, to see these teenagers on the center stage, here's what diversity has, has wrought. That's right. Yeah, Katrina Adams actually talked about all the women of color who played the game and how they created this moment in a way for fernandez
3: and radakanu. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that makes me think of my own studies on how do you achieve racial equity whether it's sports or companies or any organization.
2: Mm. Yeah, so what does the USTA still need to do for women's tennis
3: to be even more diverse and inclusive? Oh man, that that is such a such the right question to, to ask. Yes,
2: thank you. Thank yeah,
3: you. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. Because because I've been thinking about this uh, for for a long time. I've been writing about this. I've been doing this work. I run this this uh, research project uh, at Harvard that is all about how do we build infrastructure, uh, how do we move from uh, black first and seconds and Latinos first and seconds, and in this case, uh, Asian American yeah. and multiracial first and seconds yeah. to having a sustainable culture and institutional policies and practices that don't lead to uh, repeating the same histories that we've just talked about, the histories of segregation, racist umpiring, and increased media scrutiny around Black women athletes. And in fact, that's what you've been reporting on. You've been writing about this. You've been up close and personal with people building tennis infrastructure, and in Chicago in particular.
2: Yeah, one of the things that the USDA has been doing is they they don't just work from the top down with, you know, amazing athletes like Serena and Venus and Naomi Osaka, uh, these representative figures. They also work from the ground up. They have this program called the National Junior Tennis and Learning Program, which has this motto of getting more rackets in people's hands. They're they're extending who gets to play
3: tennis. Right. Kind of like my mama put a racket in my hand at a young age.
2: Yeah, a new tennis facility has opened up in our old neighborhood. So the 47th mm-hmm. Street Club is now closed down. And a, a guy named Kamal Murray has opened up the Excess Tennis and Education Foundation. And it is this like giant facility on the old grounds of the Robert Taylor
3: homes, which is- Right, you know, like 27 to, courts, right? Which yeah, is 27
2: huge. courts. Robert yeah. Taylor was the largest public housing complex in the world. And so it was That's torn right. down. And here That's in right. its place on the south side of Chicago is this tennis village. And yeah. with the with the purpose of you know there's more accessibility, uh, it's local and and not just not just um, in a recreational sense. Also, that there are high level tournaments there. So rather That's than true. rather than having to travel far away to, to see whether side, you're any right, good, like did, or the suburbs, yeah. That's that right. you can actually find out early whether. You know, this is a sport which you might not just enjoy, but you might, you know, maybe play in college and get a scholarship and maybe even, if you're good enough, be a professional player.
3: That's right. The institutions are now facing the change that is required to sustain this momentum. And what does that change mean for practical purposes? Yeah, what what does that mean? Yeah, what that means is that I envision for XS uh, on the grounds of the former Robert Taylor Holmes, white elite and European players coming there as part of the tour, that establishes the best of the best.
2: And why, so, so that, that's interesting because I, I did see a tournament there this summer. And,
3: and why, do you think, why do you think that would make a difference? That makes a difference because it fundamentally challenges assumptions and it redistributes power. It, it, it literally gives those players from the South and West sides of Chicago, or even if they're Black coming from the suburbs, or even if they're Latino or Asian coming to play at XS uh, from around the city, that's their home court. That's their community. In uh, everything we've talked about, where you had to leave your community in order to prove yourself, now non-black players, white players, international players may one day be coming to the former grounds of Robert Taylor Homes. They will be coming to South Chicago, home of the Blues, brother. Like that—that that is really powerful <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh. because Uh-oh. because that is uh, yeah, I'm, I'm worked up because that is what redistributing power means. Wow, Khalil, you really.
2: Uh... You really got revved up on here. I love this. This is this is how tennis affects you. This is why I I was hitting overhead, back to back to back, overhead, slant, rallying,
3: rallying, cross court, and and why this is so powerful for me as a model for change. Because you know, if we could think of the Williams sisters as the kind of uh, culmination of an of an entire epic of the last fifty years, Naomi is already a bellwether of change. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I'm riding. I'm riding with you. Yeah. And I'm riding with you, always. All right. All right. All right. Love you, man. I love you, too. Some of My Best Friends Are is a production of Pushkin Industries. The show is written and hosted by me, Khalil Gibran Mohammed, and my best tennis buddy, Ben Austin.
2: It's produced by Cher Vincent, Ken Wood, and edited by Karen Shakurji. Our engineer is Martine Gonzalez. Our associate editor is Keyshell Williams. And our showrunner is Sasha Mathias. Our executive producers are Lee Tal Molad and Mia LaBelle. Special thanks to Katrina Adams and Khalil's mom, Shorty Ruff. That's right,
3: 4'11", don't take no stuff. <laughs> At Pushkin, thanks to Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, and Jacob Weisberg. Our theme song,
2: Little Lily, is by fellow Chicagoan Avery R. Young from his amazing album Tubman. You will definitely want to check out more of his music at his website,
3: averyryoung.com. You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen.
2: If you love this show, and we hope you do, and others from Pushkin Industries, consider becoming a Pushnik.
3: Pushnik is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushnik exclusively
2: on Apple Podcast subscriptions. When's the first time you ever saw someone play lacrosse? I, I still haven't
3: watched anyone play lacrosse. You've never seen it before. You've never seen. <laughs> I mean, it before. I see. I see my the neighbors stick. with these nets in their yards, and but you've never actually seen someone play. I've never gone to a lacrosse game. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators